There are times, times that I start to feel a little bit optimistic about uh, trends uh, in the country. I've often said that if you want to discredit uh, progressive policy, the best thing to do is enact it, although that can be painful and dangerous. Um, you know, look around blue cities. Um, uh, but I noticed a, a distinct tilt toward the commonsensical on 60 Minutes last night. I don't know if anybody else caught it. Okay. Uh, it, it frequently annoys me. Openly progressive, uh, pitched for dumb people, that sort of thing. But it really felt like a pendulum swinging back the other way on a couple of different topics. We'll play you some clips. Scott Pelley interviewed Christopher Ray, the uh, director of the FBI, who came in after the lanky lawman. Uh, what's his, uh, James Comey, the lying, self-promoting, leak-otastic former guy after he left. Um, but they asked him a couple of things about crime in America in a way that sounded like I was asking the question. Let's begin with clip number 81, Michael. In 2020, there was a 29% jump in murder in the United States, nearly 5,000 more people killed than the year before. What is behind this leap in homicide? Certainly the pandemic didn't help. There's a variety of ways in which that contributed to it. Uh, we're seeing more and more juveniles committing violent crime, and that's certainly an issue. We're seeing uh, a, a certain amount of, uh, of gun trafficking, interstate gun trafficking, that's part of it. And we're seeing uh, an alarming frequency of some of the worst of the worst getting back out on the streets oh interesting keeping in mind that the fbi only deals with a couple of aspects of the things he talked about most murder is purely a local issue but i thought that last part was interesting yeah i hadn't even thought about that uh the the murders being a local thing but yeah i i was surprised that he brought up the whole and there's a whole bunch of bad guys on the street i wish he'd have gone a little further with that but yeah, the uh, the trend of, and there are sometimes things happen that are so crazy and idiotic, it, it disturbs me that they're allowed to happen. For instance, the idea that COVID is such a serious problem that we have to turn a healthy 22-year-old violent thug felon back out on the street to make sure he doesn't get the equivalent of a cold. Because it would be too crazy to have these people in jail. What with COVID about? I just, who is doing the weighing of those things? Right. But, but then Man, just when no I, kidding. Just when I thought, wow, 60 minutes, really? Okay. Christopher Ray bringing it. They asked a question that shocked me. Uh, number 82, Michael. In 2021, there was a 59% increase in the murders of police officers. 73 officers killed. Violence against law enforcement in this country is one of the biggest phenomenons that I think doesn't get enough attention. Last year, officers were being killed at a rate of almost one every five days. How come I didn't know that? I know. I know. It's because the media has been pitching this narrative that cops are oppressors and murderers, mainly, mainly, and that the real threat to black lives, for instance, is cops. Now, you know this show, we're on the record. Any uh, unjustified violence by any government official against any free citizen of this beautiful country is repugnant, and we're against it always, if it's unjustified. But that rhetoric, that narrative is so dangerous and is so dangerous. And one more clip on that topic uh, goes a little farther down that argument. Why are more officers being killed right now? Some of it is tied to the violent crime problem uh, as a whole. But one of the phenomena that we saw 
uh, in last year is that an alarming percentage of the 73 law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty last year were killed through things like being ambushed uh, or shot while out on patrol. They were killed because they were police officers. Right. Wearing the badge shouldn't make you a target. Now, one could uh, protest that Scott Pelley and his network and his show and his friends and the, the, at the cocktail parties at the elite private schools in New York and Washington were the very people uh, propagating this narrative that cops are evil, brutal, white supremacist oppressor, uh, oppressors and are probably going to shoot your children. And maybe, maybe that has something to do with uh, the idea that they should be executed merely for being cops, but at least they're saying it out loud. Yeah, obviously the follow-up on 60 Minutes to some of these answers could have been a lot better. They could have gone down some of these roads, and they chose not to. That's uh, That was the big disappointment to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. To, to that assertion by Scott uh, by uh, Christopher Ray, which is obviously true, it was, uh, mm, and then they moved on to a different question. Right. I mean, that's been like the story for the last couple of summers. And yet, uh, well, again, maybe the, the pendulum has just barely started moving in the other way. Do you have any idea why we decided that FBI directors get 10-year terms? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the idea is it to make them independent from the uh, the executive branch, from the president. So, so they wouldn't be beholden to them. Gotcha. So it's longer than any even two-term president. Yeah, and it's probably going to span uh, both parties. Yeah, that's a that that makes sense. Yeah, I'm uh, in favor then. then. Then finally, uh, on a different topic, I thought this was notable. First, the the why Scott Pelley brings up Russia. Who doesn't know that the main geopolitical threat to the United States is China at this point? But anyway, Pelley starts with Russia and, and gets to China in '84. In counterintelligence, does anything worry you more than Russia? The biggest threat we face as a country from a counterintelligence perspective is from the People's Republic of China, and especially the Chinese Communist Party. They are targeting our innovation, our trade secrets, our intellectual property uh, on a scale that's unprecedented in history. They have a bigger hacking program than that of every other major nation combined. They have stolen more of Americans' personal and corporate data than every nation combined. It affects everything from agriculture to aviation to high-tech to healthcare, pretty much every sector of our economy. Anything that makes an industry tick, they target. Yeah, we talk about the war in Ukraine a lot, and we will continue to talk to about it a lot because it's a heck of a an important and interesting and quickly changing story on a day-by-day basis. But in terms of people at the top and what they're paying attention to, I hope they're, you know, they're listening to Christopher Ray there cuz de- by far China long term is the major player on planet Earth in terms of being opposed to us. Yeah, and there's some China news actually. They are ab- they are on the march. They are marching as fast as they can to dominate the globe. Uh, but one more clip about what the FBI can do about it theoretically. What is the FBI doing about that? We are now moving at a pace where we're opening a new China counterintelligence investigation tech to healthcare, pretty much every sector of our economy. Anything that makes an industry tick, they target. What is the FBI doing about that? We are now moving at a pace where we're opening a new China counterintelligence investigation about every 12 hours. 
There's well north of 2,000 of these investigations. All 56 of our field offices are engaged on it. And I can assure you that it's not because our agents don't have enough else to do. It's a, a measure of how significant the threat is. And there's never any excuse for racism, okay, or xenophobia to protect the homeland. On the other hand, there's a hell of a long journey between sensible caution against an implacable enemy and xenophobia. And I have this straight from counterintelligence officers. Our universities especially are crawling with Chinese agents, whether they be official agents or just poor. And, and look, if you want to be sympathetic, they're they're poor bastards whose families are back in China. And when the Chinese Communist Party comes to them and says, we need pictures of this, we need reports on this, I know you signed a do not uh, disclose agreement, you're going to give us all of the data, etc., etc. And those uh, Chinese citizens, whether out of loyalty or enthusiasm or just fear that mom and dad will be put in a gulag, they go ahead and they execute the will of the Chinese government. We are crawling with Chinese agents in this country, which is why we have thousands of counterintelligence investigations going on right now yeah uh different topic but in china in the area they've been hit with covid in beijing now they're reporting 70 cases which probably means it's a heck of a lot more than that and uh, a lot of people are fearing a shanghai style lockdown coming to beijing now which would be something they would almost have to do that because sure. Xi Jinping has said, no, it's zero COVID. That's my baby. Trust me on this one. Go with me. I'm taking this one to the wall. That'll be something, though, in the, the, the nation's capital. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, Winnie the Pooh, maybe you should have been up front when the thing started, shared the genome, admitted what was happening, given the rest of the world the data, you evil bastard. <laughs> I like you dropping an EB on him. I hope he gets the COVID and dies from it. Wow. I haven't said that about anybody. Wow. I hope Xi Jinping gets the COVID and croaks. Well, sure, that's perfectly appropriate. I can list plenty of people that I would not feel bad about saying that about. Xi, Putin. Struggling to breathe on a ventilator. That would be justice. Oof. Um, ha- Have an acquaintance who's quite sick with the second variant of Omicron right now as a... That's right, I do know her age. She's 42. Wow. Um, uh, you know, prime life sort of person and dang sick. So it's still good. You know, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not worried about it. I never think about it, but it can still get you. Mm-hmm. Yep, indeed. Wow. I hope uh, things go well for her. Uh, I like China displaying to the world, though, what they are. So that's the thing about these Chinese cities getting hit with COVID is everybody gets to watch and see what the authoritarian governments look like. China is asshole. That's exactly right, Michael. That's a good summary. <laughs> um, we ought to take a break. We got so many good things to get to today. Elon Musk is going to take over Twitter. I thought that for some reason, I'd all my reading, I'd come to the conclusion that was probably dead like a week ago. Now it looks like sometime this week it's going to be announced he he owns Twitter. Wow. Um, what that means, I'm not a quite quite sure. A bunch of stuff on the way. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The collapse of the Soviet Union and appear, uh, the, the appearance on the map of many independent states. Russia made no, let me emphasize, not a single uh, demand to Ukraine about ter- ter- territories. No, just, you know, it, 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 there was no issue. 
even more important, in 1994, and I don't know how much uh, your audience is, is, is aware of that, there was a, uh, an agreement signed in, Bud in Budapest, so-called Budapest Memorandum. Under pressure from Americans and Brits, Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal. Uh, do you know the size of this nuclear arsenal? It was m bigger than China, Great Britain, and France combined. They, they had to give it back to Russia because Americans wanted to deal only with one country as the owner of, of nukes, and then small portions of Kazakhstan and Belarus followed. So everything was in Russian's hands. In exchange, Ukraine received guarantees from Russia, U uh, uh, America, and Britain about territorial integrity. So there was no issue. In 2014, 20 years later, Putin simply you know, ignored it, moved in. Reaction, zero, no reaction. Some small sanctions, Putin didn't care about it. And I think, you know, that's, the, that's emboldened Putin because from 2014 to these days, he has been consistently saying that Ukraine must be destroyed. That's, again, not me. It's him and his propaganda. He denied Ukrainian statehood. He made it very clear that Ukraine, you know, didn't belong to the map. And, and Russia, you know, had rights to, to, to expand its influence to cut Ukraine from the sea. So basically occupying 10 Ukrainian uh, uh, districts. And uh, as of today, by the way, I just read the latest news. Now they uh, declared new goals, not to only take the east, but also the south of, of, of Ukraine, because they failed to take Kyiv. But basically, it's this. Putin never, never left us any doubts about his goals in, in Ukraine, and his propaganda machine actually is pushing further. They're talking now about extermination of Ukrainians. We are not seeing just genocide committed by, by, by few you know, Russian troops. This is a state-supported genocide because every day they keep repeating that Ukraine must be denazified, which just sounds odd because Ukrainian president is a Jew. Russia has rights to take over Ukraine and basically remove Ukraine from the map. I doubt it was an option eight years ago. Now, of course, it's not. After tens of thousands of civilians murdered, and we are, by the way, watching war crimes on an on, on industrial scale online, practically online. I don't think that the war will, will end up with quote-unquote tie. There will be no draws, no compromises. Either Putin wins or we win. And I say we win. And that's exactly the position of many Europeans. After years and years of appeasement and doing business with Putin, they recognize it's not Russia-Ukraine. Yes, you repeated the same you know, notion, Russia-Ukraine. No, the global security infrastructure you know, cannot exist at a time where the mighty country attacks their smaller neighbor and grabs territory and annexes it and decides, okay, now I want to re redo the map. That brings us back to the 20th century, the first half 20th century, or even to early days. And by the way, Putin always, you know, um, demonstrates his admiration, not only for Joseph Stalin, but also Ivan the Terrible. And that's, you know, the world that nobody will like, because we all hope to prosper and thrive in the world where we respect the law, the, 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 the treaties, uh, the memorandums, the compromises. And Putin demonstrates that, no, violence is not only uh, allowed, but it's desirable. If I have might, I could, be, I could do whatever, whatever I find you know, appropriate for my geopolitical agenda. So Europeans recognize that the war cannot be uh, limited to Ukraine because uh, Ukraine is a big country. I mean, let's not forget, the biggest European country country of 44 million people, though we have probably about 10 million refugees now, and this country could resist. Poland is also a big country, but Lithuania and Balt Baltic countries, they are relatively small. And everybody understands now, if not for NATO, because these countries have been adopted uh, uh, or admitted to NATO uh, uh, in the beginning of this of the century, Russian tanks now would be parading in the streets of Vilnius, Tallinn, and Riga. 
So, and it's not surprising that, you know, we see now that the Finland and Sweden now is just is planning, planning to join NATO, ending their decade-long decade -long policy of, of, of neutrality. So this is not a war for, for uh, Ukrainian territorial integrity only. This is not a war only for Europe. This is a war that will have consequences elsewhere, because if Putin, God forbid, succeeds, then what will prevent China attacking Taiwan? So it's, this is a test whether international community has guts, has resources to prevent a naked aggression to, uh, to, to succeed. And again, with Europe, that was so much in bed with Putin. Look at Germany, for instance. This is the gas business. Uh, and, and, and Angela Merkel uh, uh, government did absolutely everything to prevent other alternative routes uh, uh, of gas supply to Europe. So they relied heavily on Russia. And now they realized, you know, that was a big, a big mistake. And that's why reluctantly they are now supplying Ukraine with weapons because they know that the, it's the, the conflict is too close to NATO borders. And uh, even by mistake, one of the Russian missiles can hit uh, a NATO territory. And what, what, what next? Lviv is, is, is about 40 miles from the Polish border. And, and Russians that are hitting the entire Ukrainian territory saying, okay, there are military uh, infrastructure objects, though we know it's, it's now a war to bomb Ukrainians into submission. But uh, uh, Gary, since they failed with uh, initial thrust to take Kiev in three days, as they planned, they, sh they shifted to what Putin knew the best, attacks on civilians. And, and the demolition of Ukraine is something that I last time saw in the World War II uh, movies. Because they are, they, are, they are on the side of, of democracy versus tyranny. And this is the front line. So it seems that they're doing a great job, by the way. So this is, it's if, you know, in the beginning of the war, everybody, and I say everybody, American intelligence, uh, Europeans, politicians, they all thought Ukraine would fall in three, four days. And that was Putin's plans. It failed. Uh, and then people say, oh, maybe Ukraine can survive a bit longer and, and to move the war into insurgency, uh, um, uh, insurgency uh, stage. And that's why they talk about Afghanistan and Vietnam, not understanding that Ukraine is very different. No mountains like in Afghanistan, no jungles like in Vietnam. And Ukrainian army is, is, is now the bigger than the Russian army. It's a big country and it's much more experienced. So this is Russia lost, you know, most of its best troops in, in the first days of war. And now when you look at the, at the um, balance, Ukraine actually can win. So, and in and NATO, again, I was highly critical of NATO unwillingness to offer Ukrainians protections, you know, like uh, no-fly zone. I understood the, the reservations. We can talk about it forever because for me, you now just, just watching the, uh, the, uh, the sufferings and actually the, the, the killings of, of so many civilians that were defenseless against Russians' attacks from, from high skies. So that was, that, that was too, 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 it's too painful. But okay. We are now here. It's almost two weeks or uh, two, two, two months of the war. And NATO is now uh, shifted to the uh, sort of um, its full gear, supplying Ukraine with heavy weapons. The goal has to be declared, and they're still falling short of that. Ukraine must win, and it's doable. Russian troops are depleted. Their, their, their offense in, in the East is not going as uh, well. And if Ukraine receives enough weapons, and it's combined with sanctions, and sanctions are having huge effect on Russia. Your previous speaker talked about oil and gas industry, but it's, it, it has effect everywhere because Russian economy has been built, you know, um, you know, as a part of the global economy, unlike Soviet Union. It couldn't actually rely on, on, on domestic production. So many things, you know, like aviation or practically everything depend on the spare parts. We don't know how long, but I would say two, three months 
you know, just hearing to what Russian officials are saying, reading between the lines. So Russia may be facing shortage of practically everything. And of course, money. Putin, Putin uh, relied on his hundreds of billions of dollars that were uh, placed everywhere in the world. A lot of this money now is frozen. And, uh, you know, he may, he may be still, he may be short, uh, uh, soon facing, facing a dramatic shortage of cash to pay for his propaganda, police and army. War is an expensive business. We understand that. And it's not surprising that Russia is bringing very old technology now to the, to the front line. They're bringing troops from everywhere. I mean, the fact is that Putin brought troops from far east. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Russian borders now are basically, you know, naked. So he brought troops from Tajikistan, you know, this is this, an Afghan border, uh, from Armenian uh, base, uh, from uh, Republic of Georgia, some occupied uh, territories where he had his bases. So uh, according to the um, uh, rough estimation of, of intelligence, so up to 80% of Russian military power now is either in Ukraine or surrounding Ukraine. And they're still not winning the war. And I think Ukraine can win. And that's, you know, that's far more important uh, than simply restoring Ukraine territorial integrity. It's about sending the message to everybody, China included, that the, the, the naked aggression might have dramatic consequences. A, the world will su support the, the, the victim of aggression. And B, sanctions might be, might be uh, uh, very painful. And that's why I believe that's the reason why China is so cautious now. That Putin expected China to be, you know, in supporting him, you know, just it's all the way down the road. China is sitting on the fence. And not only China, all China's clients like Kazakhstan, they, they also try to be friendly to Ukraine. They don't, of course, they don't call it genocide, but they offer no assistance to Russia. And that's, by the way, important. Russia is isolated now. And I think that's the, that's the lesson for every future aggressor. To learn, as I said this morning, I read, you know, that that the Russia confirmed its its intention to take to take over the south of Ukraine. That's exactly what was Putin's plan in 2014. They even published the maps of the so-called Novorossiya, New Russia, uh, stretching from Luhansk. I think many will know the map now, all the way down south to Odessa, basically cutting Ukraine from Azov Sea and the Black Sea. So that was the plan, and they reinstated is the, this plan after Putin met uh, Russian Minister of Defense, and today it was published. So uh, I don't think that they will ever stop. But uh, the question is, that's, do they have resources for that? I doubt very much. And, uh, and big statements, you know, that Putin is making, they are not meeting the reality on the ground. And I think many of his generals know that. And answering your question about desperation. So when we say desperate, we're talking about WMDs. And uh, are we talking about WMDs chemical or tactical nuclear? or ballistic missiles. So that's the, it's this, yeah, that, that's all different things. Now, I think it's most realistic is, is, is talking about tactical uh, uh, nuclear. That's something that can be used to, to destroy some of the military objects because the strategic effect of, of uh, uh, tactical nuclear is not huge. So yeah, it's, it's, but it, it, it's, it's more like sending a message. So that's the, and, and demonstrating that he's ready to actually to move to the next stage. But now the question is, who is going to push the button? Let's say Putin decides out of desperation to move at the next stage. Now we're talking about his generals and admirals that might be thinking, okay, fine. If I push the button, what, what's, what comes next? And it seems now that NATO is reaching a point, uh, definitely the Brits already uh, made the statement, Boris Johnson said it, that there will be adequate response. From what I know about the uh, morale in the Russian army now, and again, I don't pretend to be, you know, just it's at, at the 
uh, 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 having a special knowledge. I left my country more than nine years ago, but you know, I'm still connected. I doubt very much that there will be enough uh, will to die because that means dying. The, the moment you push the button, the, and most likely NATO, NATO or Ukrainian missile will, come, will hit you back. So, uh, and the, after, after the Ukrainians sank the Russian flagship, so that's, that's demonstration that things, you know, can go really ugly. I think that Putin may find it difficult to um, um, rally kamikaze from his army, whether, you know, uh, uh, single pilots that would like to go to the skies to met, to, 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 to met NATO, NATO planes, or admirals and generals that will authorize the strike. Again, uh, do I, uh, can I bet my bottom dollar on that? No. But as I said, it's not chess. It's more like poker. It's Russian roulette. So we are dealing with unknowns here. But again, it says, this is, uh, what are the chances of us to, to, to uh, avoid it? I think this is strengthening the Ukrainian army reduces the risk. Because we should not think what Putin likes or dislikes. I think basically forget him. Say he's a mad dictator who can do whatever. It's about people on the ground uh, who will have to, to, to carry his orders. And if they see that they're losing, I think they will be very reluctant to sacrifice their lives for the uh, sick uh, imagination of, of a mad dictator. Because Putin has been selling Russian national interest to China for, for two decades. It's not happening now. He has been giving China, Russian oil and gas and, and, and thim, timber and resources of Far East and East, East Siberia and even West Siberia for at a very low price. So the, that's why now shifting his contracts from Europe to China is not possible because China already bought it in advance at a very low price. So he will, he will never compensate. And there's no infrastructure there. So the Chinese problem is huge. I can tell you, in 2006, I've been traveling, you know, in Russian Far East and East Siberia, traveling from Irkutsk to Vladivostok, actually, other, other way around, from Vladivostok to Irkutsk. And in Irkutsk, near Lake Baikal, I had a very sad, very sad uh, uh, anecdote, a joke, a local joke. They told me about Chinese, you know, expansion, saying, Chinese are crossing our borders in small groups, 100,000 each. <laughs> so that's the, that could give you an idea, 2006. So the, the China's, China's threat to Russia, to, to my country is real. And by the way, China is the only country, it's not NATO, that has territorial claims. You look at the Chinese maps, half of Russia is temporary occupied territory. So China is a problem for Russia. And that's why if we're talking about the future geopolitical combination, so Russia with Putin will be China's vassal state. I couldn't agree more. Russia without Putin is an, is an ally of, of uh, Europe, of the United States and eventually a real ally of India because we all understand that the, the imperialist China is the biggest threat for democracy and stability in the uh, 21st century. And with the Chinese economic miracle is now going, uh, you know, of, um, of losing its steam, uh, China will, will eventually uh, uh, move into these geopolitical adventures. Attacking Taiwan is, 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 an, is an option, we understand that. And China now is experiencing so many problems with, with, with COVID. And it's, it's also a demonstration that they, they failed to come up with a vaccine, proper vaccine. That's, that's, that tells you everything about, about their ability to compete with the free world. So that could make Xi Jinping uh, uh, and his cronies desperate for actions. And that's why sooner we have change in Russia, better our, our chance to build a strong coalition to tame Chinese dragon. Putin's, I always call him a merchant of doubt. He's very good in spreading chaos and doubts, and uh, it's all about him surviving. It's a mafia state. 
And Putin is, is a capo de tutti capi, boss of bosses. So he will sell any strategic partner if he sees an immediate benefit for him. So that's why, you know, he, he doesn't care. So he deals with Iranians, he deals with Israelis, he deals with China, he deals with India. But you should remember that, you know, that Putin, you know, may look at, the, at your region, your part of the world, you know, as another opportunity to, to, uh, to put it ablaze. So there's so many problems there. So it's, 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 you have Pakistan, you have, you know, all sorts of uh, problems in the region I don't have to tell you about. And that's, you know, something that for, for uh, Putin's criminal mind could be another opportunity. He's too busy now in Ukraine. And let's, let's keep him busy so, and hopefully we'll, we, can, we can ruin his, 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 his regime. So I think, again, it's India's long-term strategy to, should be to, you know, to be on the side of the free world because, again, Russia is immediate problem. Let's go back to chess now. It's a tactical problem. China is a strategic challenge. And I think, you know, you should look for, for the coalition that will, you know, oppose Chinese threat. It's a much, much bigger threat. If Russian army can be destroyed in, in, the, in, in, the, in the Ukrainian steppes and valleys uh, and Putin regime may collapse, by the way, I think it will not survive, you know, for the next two years. That's, you know, take, take, take it as my prediction. So we'll, we'll see big changes in Russia. But China is going to be there. And I think it's now, it's time to start thinking strategically. I, you know, I heard so many good comments today here, and I think it's important for us to start building this strategy. Yeah, uh, and, um, and India, I believe, can play an, 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 a major role because it's the, one, of the, one of the arguments of Chinese Communist Party uh, is that, oh, countries as big as China cannot be democratic. The answer to this, to this uh, false assumption is India. So I think India could actually play a role as the, as the biggest democracy in the world and, 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 of course, economic powerhouse. And it could become a leader of this coalition that will start, you know, uh, changing things in Asia for positive. Not to if going from this from the uh, from the region with so many uh, landmines, geopolitical landmines, into something for more you know um, uh, friendly for for um, uh, our habitat. As I as I told you, you know, so I was not an expert, so I called my friend Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the uh, the former head of Yukos, you know, this is the largest Russian company that has been confiscated by Putin and the man spent ten years in in jail. Now he lives in the West. I asked his qualified opinion. And he said um, he's, he, he, he's more aware about oil, not gas, because that was his, you know, his, his product. Um, uh, but he thinks that this, the, uh, this, this threat is real only in winter. So uh, as of now, it's, um, he said it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not that relevant. For the next few months, we should not count on this. But in winter, he said, if you start, you know, just, you know, uh, uh, dumping the production, you could have, you get problems uh, uh, definitely with oil. So that's why, again, it's just the, the long-term long -term future may not, look, may not be bright for Russian oil, oil and gas industry, but for the next three, four months, you know, uh, maybe even six months, so that's, uh, that's uh, six months probably already called, three, four months, that's not, that's not um, uh, uh, a vital, vital threat. What I know about history and about current affairs, and I try to, 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 to apply my historical experience, personal experience to, to, the, to the current affairs, analyzing them, is that Putin cannot afford to look like a loser because he knows. I'm not sure he read many books, but he, know, he has a good animal instinct. Uh, any dictator who stays in power for 20 plus years has a great instinct of survival. And uh, um, he knows that dictator who looks weak is dead, both politically and, and physically. So it's the, the moment he shows weakness, his, uh, his uh, own cronies will be looking for a scapegoat, and typically it's a dictator himself. 
So that's why he will use every resource he has to win the war. Again, the question is how far he can go and how far others can go. And uh, um, I think they'll still try in the next uh, uh, 10 days uh, to, to push through. Uh, but from what I'm seeing now, it's highly unlikely they will have a major uh, military success in eastern Ukraine. They could have some tactical successes. But the idea to encircle Ukrainian troops in the, in the east, it's, it's unlikely. And obviously, every day Ukraine is getting stronger because now they're receiving heavy armor, uh, long-range artillery, uh, anti-ship missiles. So the balance of war is changing every day against Russia. And I want to remind the audience, the Ukrainian army is now bigger than Russian army in, in size. So this is, they, they, they keep bringing fresh you know, um, reinforcements from, from the West. It's a, it's a country, big country with you know, full mobilization now. Uh, and many of their troops are really experienced because they had eight years of fighting experience in, in, in Donbass. So um, uh, I, would, I would wait for another couple of weeks to see the outcome. And then we, by May 9th, this is, you mentioned, sacred date. By the way, people always ask me why May 9th. It's because Stalin didn't want to celebrate the, the V-Day the same day as the free world because the Germany capitulated on May 8th, but Stalin wanted his separate, separate celebration. That's why he forced Germans to do a second capitulation on May 9th. So just to, to be different, that's, that's, that's a little known historical fact. So that's why Russia celebrates uh, V-Day, you know, at one day, one day later. That's, and, uh, um, and I think it's, that's, if nothing happens by that time, so we'll see what, 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 what's, what's next. But I saw Putin's conversation with, with his Minister of Defense, Shoigu. Let me tell you, they both look bad. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I, don't, I cannot make a diagnosis, but they look bad. And uh, uh, it seems that Shoigu really had a heart attack because he just, he, he was very, looked very feeble. But Putin with his hands, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, holding the table, again, it doesn't inspire confidence. And it's, it's not about me watching, it's about Russian generals, Russian officers, Russian soldiers, Russian families. Watching him, he doesn't look strong anymore. So that's the, and if, if dictator doesn't uh, uh, um, uh, radiate strength, that's really bad news. So that's why I, I think that the, the war may end up very poorly for, for Russia. And by the way, though I'm Russian, I still think it's the best outcome for us. Because I think the liberation of Russia from Putin's regime will become with liberation of Ukraine from Putin's troops.